Hey, this is Big Lou. That's double L-O-U. Hi, I'm Veronica Jackson. Hey, everybody, this is Adam Gusso. I'm Dietrich Farr. Hey there, folks, this is Donald Trump of the American Songster, slapping the dap with Jack Dapper. Hi, this is Guy Davis. Hi, I'm Shamika Copeland. Hey, I'm Ben Turner of Piedmont Blues. I'm here with Valerie Turner. And we are bluesing with Lamont Jack Burley. Hi, I'm Larry Griffin, and I keep it locked and loaded on Jack Dapper Blues. Yes, yes, yes. Augustus Heritage Center of the Davis and Elkins College in West Virginia holds an annual Blues and Swing Week where I was honored and have the privilege to attend this year. I also have the honor and opportunity to speak to a few people on their journey in music, their understanding of traditions and cultures of music, as well as their experience at the Blues and Swing Week. On this episode of Jack Dapper Blues, we speak to Joe Bayless, jump piano blues player, also old Negro spiritual player on that piano, and he sings it as well. Remember, share, like, Subscribe, and for more great content, intellectual conversations, and the truth of the blues and blues people, be sure to click that donate button, because we are public media. What's happening, what's happening, what's happening, blues people? Yet another episode of Jack Dapper Blues podcast, not Jack Dapper Blues Radio. This is the podcast, and we're recording actually live from the Augusta Heritage Center. I'm sitting with a very interesting man. The first day I arrived here, I believe from 2, 2.30 to about 11, 12 midnight, he was on the piano <laughs> and played many songs. Uh, and wears many hats. So before we get into it, let me just welcome our guest, Joel Bayless. How are you, sir? I'm great. Happy to be here t- chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you. So now, first of all, before we get in- into everything that you are doing, uh, studied, and, and understand, I would like to ask you the importance of the Augusta Heritage Center and this uh, Blue Swing Week program. It's very important Um, people need a culture in this world. To me, not having a culture is being naked with the cold winds blowing, and a culture keeps you warm. And it's good if you have your own culture, but in America, we can borrow other people's cultures and learn them, and that enriches our lives. It's enriched my life tremendously. Uh, Learning Cajun accordion, I sing about 50 songs in Cajun French. I'm not Catholic, I'm not French. Um, have nothing to do with that culture, but I love the music. I, I dance all the, their dances, the two-step, the one-step, um, waltz, and uh, I'm Jewish, and here at the Gusta workshops, it gives me a chance to be exposed to music that I love, and it's not Jewish music, which I know well, I experience, but give you an example. Here I get to swing dance and blues dance, doing jitterbug. I love to dance. I dance all the time. And the Jews have a dance called the Hora, which they borrowed from the Poles over in Europe. And uh, that's not couple dancing. I like couple dancing. That's a circle dance. So it's an example of borrowing dancing, swing dancing from a culture that's not my own, and tunes, um, the blues, 
famously, they're not Jewish, <laughs> and on and on. And uh, now it's, I would like to say the most common thing in the world that everyone celebrates about black culture informing all American music that the blues are at the root of everything. I mean, that's an exaggeration, not everything, but it's just so important. And it's just, it's so famous how it influenced rock and roll and everything else in the world. So uh, this is a good, good place to hear real blues the way they should be played. Um, and, and all the different music, or musics that they have here. So everyone is very friendly and very warm. The teachers are very patient. And uh, everyone has a good time. Yes. Now, there's something you said that I, yeah. I would like to touch on, because you really made it a point to be clear about that. And I've heard uh, uh, a lot of uh, people, some, some of the teachers, some of the um, dance uh, uh, members, that were giving a presentation for culture, the culture talk. Yes. You, you made it really clear, borrow the culture, borrow something from the culture. Yeah. Why are you making that distinction? Because this is very, a bit philosophical, but it's at the center of my belief and of life as I live it and my understanding of the world. It may sound dogmatic, it's academic, but the basis of my whole understanding of this country of ours, this United States, is what Robert Heilbronner, the late Marxist historian and economist, said. He wrote The Worldly Philosophers, which is a very famous book that lots of schools used 50 years ago. Maybe they're still using it. He said the United States does not have a culture. It doesn't even have a society. It has an economy. And because we live in an economy, that's why if you don't have money and unemployed, you can find yourself on the street or be homeless. A society would take care of its members, as I understand it, and a culture would nourish and feed its members by telling them what to wear and what to eat and how to dance and what to read and who, who to pray to and all those things that a real culture does. But America, however full of cultures and partial fragmented cultures it is, doesn't have an American culture. It might be developing in the last few years, but certainly 30, 40 years ago, um, it did not have a culture that deracinated people, people without any other roots, could just join. Famously, the Americans of Irish extraction. Uh, there's learned articles on this. They're famous for not knowing, many of them, not knowing anything about Ireland and not knowing anything about Irish history or their own culture, if you call it Irish culture. They're just Americans. They play baseball. They eat at McDonald's. Um, they wear baseball caps and all that stuff. Uh, ride around in SUVs, and, but they don't have any culture because America doesn't give them one. What America provides everybody is a popular culture or commercial culture. Those are the same thing. Um, when it tells you what to eat, it tells you to eat Coca-Cola and hamburger, uh, McDonald's hamburgers, which are not good for you, in right. my opinion. A real culture, I mean, think about Italian food, Polish food, uh, black food. Uh, it's, it nourishes you. Um, that, it, it's not like, well, all right, anyway, so... No, I understand. I uh, understand uh, what you're getting to. Okay, <laughs> so I, um, regular Americans don't have a culture to give them a sense of purpose and why they're alive. Real cultures tend to provide those sorts of answers. Um, cultures that are very Catholic, uh, certainly the church provides a lot of answers about things for people, a lot of community, and on and on and on like that. Um, Good grief, uh, black Baptist churches 
um, the singing and shouting and the praying that goes on. People, this is a famous historical commonplace that you have a shunned and despised race, the African-Americans of this country who were slaves, and where are they going to go for sustenance and the relief from all the insane hatred and mistreatment? So you go to your black church, and they're everyone's brothers and sisters, and you get the spirit. That's a culture that's famously protective and nourishing. So uh, let's see, now we're... What was my what was the original well, question? Yes. Why you made the uh, uh, specific um, 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 statement of borrowing from the culture? Oh, right. So America is it's is it empty or is it full? If you're a person without roots, deracinated, as I say, um, it can seem like a great big wasteland if you don't have a culture and you're just watching TV and commercials and all. Like in my lifetime, I'm seventy. Uh, people have done that I see. They're always watching the game, um, whatever. I'm sure it's a lot of fun, but uh, it doesn't nourish you. Then people don't have the hugs and everything else that they need, the music, the dancing, the stuff that makes life fun, because those are all cultural things. So um, America has all these different cultures, and if you study them or participate in them, it can be great. My life, I... I have a graduate degree in Hebrew literature and language, um, Ugaritic cuneiform. It's like a proto-Hebrew, precursor to Hebrew, um, Arabic, things like that. And uh, I study Jewish subjects all the time. I read the Hebrew Bible, um, keep all that up. And so it's fabulous. And this has been a warm coat for me. But, my God, I, what thrills me, I mean, that thrills me. But what really I get high on is dancing. And I don't dance Jewish dances. I mean, I could do the horror, but everyone is too anemic when they do it. All the American <laughs> Jews I know, they form in a big circle, and they don't get that centrifugal force going right. that makes the dance fun. Right. Because this is like a cultural artifact. They're doing it to be Jewish because Jews do the horror, but they're, uh, they're not really dancing. Understood. They, understood. This is like, this is, quote, if you'll pardon the expression, white people. Um, I... Sorry, this is my own invention as far as I know, unless you correct me. Okay. I've uh, invented a term called W-I-T-E. W-I-T-E. Okay. It's for people who are bourgeois. I'm bourgeois. But for people who are middle class or bourgeois who are polite and careful and they're afraid to, they won't go to the front of the church. They don't want to be seen by anybody and all that. And so this wouldn't matter except here at Augusta, where I've been coming for many years, there's all these people who wish they could play music, who want to be musicians. And if you're going to sit back, are you going to like mumble when you're singing? Or if you're going to like read from music, you're going to perform, but you have a sheet in front of you and you're looking at the words rather than the audience. All that stuff is polite and works for a regular society, but it's not being a performer. If you look at performers, they shout and they right. reach people. So I call... When people are sort of lackluster and don't have that, they're being polite and calm, like if they're at a board meeting or something. I call that W-I-T-E, um, why it wouldn't refer to the color of a person's skin. It's a sort of lack of what some of us think we get from black culture, mm. which is a fabulous self-expression and singing like you mean it and dancing like you mean it. And all that, however, it's... There's all these racial issues that are very complex about the other and looking at the end of the telescope, through the telescope of somebody. 
but this is a phenomenon that um, non-African American people um, experience, some of them, myself, where it can become condescending, it can become trivialized, it can become stupid. Um, the famous racist slur that black people, this is old, that black people are childlike. Right. Um, all that shit. Um, but I hope, I'm, I'm talking about my own experience, and my own experience is shared by some other people that I know where we marvel <laughs> at the way some black people sing and dance and do things. It's just a fa- this is a cliche in America. And then so you have all these people staring at people having fun and a good time and really enjoying themselves and wishing they could. Right. Well, at this point, some of us feel we've gotten on the boat. Right. Um, and, and participate in that. Um, I pound the piano and I yell and, and all that, but that's all inspired by uh, black musicians. Um, none of, I don't know any... I, yeah, my experience is very heavily... My musical experience is really ba- very heavily based on black music and famously, not only blues, but even... I've been fiddling for 55 years and when I started out, I thought of that as a very white W-H-I-T-E music in the mounds, the Appalachian mounds. But with more study over the years, famously, that is totally informed by black music and black forms, the, white, right. the so-called white fiddling, because that white fiddling comes from Ireland, where I spent months, two years in a row. Uh, my honeymoon was there for three months. I studied the Irish a certain amount. I mean, through books and being there. And... Um, the, certainly the American fiddle tunes are based on an Irish tradition, and some of the same names pertain. Um, I think a song like Turkey in the Straw is um, an Irish tune, though it's also called Old Zip Coon, and I guess that's an American name for it, but it's a very classic fiddle tune. Anyway, that music, uh, my understanding is, the way it departs from the Irish music with syncopation and harmony notes, with the Irish play just single notes, Right. Um, we think that that's from African-American influence. Duh. Um, <laughs> so the, the black experience in music has informed all my fiddling, and I've been playing piano for 52 years, and totally, the piano is all African-American influence from old guys, reissues of uh, musicians from the 20s and 30s, singing and playing, self-taught. And uh, so you asked for that clar- about that clarification, I'm aware, I know who I am, and I am as Jewish as can be, um, but the things, I'm la- the things I need, things I miss, things I love, don't come from my, some of it does not come from my culture. Um, my culture, what it does, my culture as I, experience, as I understand it, it's famous, you want to sit around and study. This is old Jews, I'm an old Jew, you sit around and study the Talmud, I have studied that in Aramaic. It's a different language. It's hard as hell. And that's actually thrilling to me. Okay. But God forbid I should like be doing that all the time, which Jews used to do in Europe and in this country a little bit in New York and places. I want to get up and dance and I want to play music. So I don't get that from my own culture, but uh, I get that from the African-American culture and also the Cajun music, which I love. Now that's influenced by black music too, of course. Right, because it derives out of New Orleans with a big cluster of a lot of things happening. Amen. <laughs> All right, over to you. Well, <laughs> you know, so speaking of your piano experience, uh, Cajun and African-American music, your 
also well-versed in Negro spirituals. Totally. He was, he was hammering some out. <laughs> I, know, I know zillions, I know hundreds of spirituals, white ones and um, black ones. The preference I have is for what I understand is low church as opposed to high church. High church, as I understand, is Catholic and Presbyterian, maybe even Methodist, I'm not sure of that. But low church is the Charismatics, Pentecostals, um, Evangelicals. Right. And they're the ones who get down, in quotes. Um, I've been to uh, a, a Pentecostal service. I was thrilled. I was so pleased. They didn't have any prayer books. And uh, they were singing, and they had guitars and things like that, which I love that. So, And the preacher, when he was preaching, it was just extempore, and he got on his knees, and he's that famous Baptist sort of preaching. I don't know what it's called where you go, there's that sharp uzz. Like in the, right, I know what you're talking about. And I love... Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, I grew up in that. That's a uh, hooting, hollering preacher, I believe is what it's called. Cool. You told me something <laughs> I never knew. So um, services like that I love. This is a little bit off the subject, but it's something I thought of, and I mentioned it here. The famous, what we get from others' cultures, in this case for me, African-American culture, and that's all here at Augusta, all this stuff that I'm talking about. People perform and trade notes here, and it's all on our subject that you and I are talking about. Um, Call and response is huge for black music, and we think that goes back to Africa. there's evidence of anthropologists or people who've gone there and uh, they see this in some of the villages and remote places, maybe all, all over, I don't know. So call and response is so basic to the music I do. Though you're talking about uh, spirituals and things like that, I sing hundreds of songs and I can sing with anybody and uh, I'll sing a line and then there's that response and that makes it easy for everybody. That's what it's all about. That's how... African-American culture works musically in this area. You have a leader who sings something, then people respond typically with the same line. Gospel groups, quartets, which famously have five people in them and not... Right. Thank you. Um, <laughs> they uh, have Even a le- if the fifth person is just the guitarist. They, they have a leader, and then the other people are just singing the same thing over and over and over. Right. That's all call and response. So my point is, in the, in the Jewish services, Reformed Jewish services... And um, other branches of Judaism still have this too, have it too. There's call and response because it's called responsive reading. Right. And they have that, I'm sure, in the Methodist church. So you say, God is great. And then the audience, I mean the congregation from their book says, he is all merciful and kind. God is this. And then the, uh, the congregation responds. I find that boring as hell. <laughs> and um, that's a type of call and Maybe. I invented that this this night, last night, thinking about talking to you today. I came up with that idea that maybe in my own tradition, if you want to call it that, I don't like it. I don't go to services. I haven't for years because they're too boring to me. Um, but uh, there is a... That responsive reading is a type of call and response. It is. But it becomes dynamic and electric in black music where... Uh, so, these spirituals... So the black spirituals are so wonderful to sing because the tunes are so wonderful. And this is true of white and black spirituals, uh, hymns that I know, is it's on years ago, maybe not as much today, but maybe still today. It depends on who's thinking about it. But it's unusual 
or it, it strikes people as unusual and sort of wrong and weird for Jews to be in love with Christian, with, with gospel tunes and hymns. And, and so for all the Jews who don't know anything about their own traditions, okay, so maybe you give them a pass, but I am steeped in Jewish history and even, as I say, Hebrew and Aramaic and all this stuff. I, I have a degree in it, so I'm official. Um, and I love this music, and the way I would explain it to anyone who is curious is I, w I have nothing to do with doctrine. Uh, ideas about Jesus died for our sins and he's going to save us. All that stuff means, not only does it mean nothing to me, I think I don't care for the ideas at all. Um, but the feeling, the feeling in the hymns and the songs, I love that feeling. The idea of going to heaven and saying your loved ones. Right. Who would not love for that? Right. That. Now, now in saying that, uh, Jesus uh, and the feeling that you're describing, both, I'll just use it, I'll say lack for, you know, concepts, but both concepts is a major factor in the, the black culture, black church, and the black spirituals, which kind of is what uh, uh, motivates that passion, because this is a, a strong belief system. Right, right, totally right. So the way that works is, I hope I'm on your subject. I hope I'm being responsive to what you just said. The way that works is, is that, yes, you have a real culture with real beliefs. I'm not of that culture, and I don't share those beliefs, but those produce this wonderful music. I'm not the only one who talks this way. People adore African-American music, gospel, and I mean, it's just wonderful. Um, it's, it's, commercially, it's huge. I, Aretha Franklin singing gospel tunes, right. or anything. Yes, singing anything by Aretha. So your love for the music, do you remember when it started or what uh, sparked it? Yeah, this is, um, my, is the way I'm talking and going into detail, is, is, that, is, is that okay? Absolutely. Because this is, this is another big subject, and it has legs, it has depth to it. This is sociological, and it's my description, and people can take it or leave it, they can have their own ideas. But my understanding is that when you're a marginal culture, you want to typically want to be in the mainstream culture. So you have this mainstream American culture, Plymouth Rock and the southern plantation owners and all that stuff, um, people who are Christian, at least nominally, and white, as it's called. And so then other groups... You have your non-whites, and this is something that books have come about, come out with recently, about becoming white. And the, the idea here is that in the old days, in the 1800s, the Irish were not white. Um, the famous signs about entrance into places, no Irish or dogs, sometimes right. no Jews, Irish, all that. So the Jews aren't white back in 1840, 1880, maybe. Jews, Italians, Irish, they're not white people. And the white people are on the stock exchange and all that. And then, I read this in history books, when the stock market collapse came in 29, the white ascendancy, or whatever you want to call it, lost its credibility. White people couldn't run the United States the way they had, and everyone beneath, is beneath them because the economic system had failed. Right. So during the Depression, what happens, FDR brings Jewish advisors and uh, famous uh, Irish-American advisors 
uh, don't, can't think of the Italians right now, but those groups who had been shut out of Harvard and with quotas, they start, after the crash, they start rising in the colleges. The way that um, we see African-American students for the last however long it's been, 20 years, 30 years, um, in Ivy League schools, right. where they weren't in, in the 50s, I don't think there were too many of them. Not many. I, I think um, after W.E.B. Du Bois, it's, it's, it was a long <laughs> yeah. hold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so the, about my interest in music, so the Jews have some Jews can't ever talk about everybody because uh, people vary. But so I hope anybody hearing this will always understand that I don't mean every single person. I don't want any stereotypes. If I and the side here, I'm lecturing now, is that if every Jew you ever have met, all ten of them, have always cheated you, you get to say that every Jew you have ever met has cheated you. That's what happened to you. Right. But it's anti-Semitic if you say Jews, all Jews, like take advantage of you and cheat you. Same for black people or anything. A person can talk about their actual experience and no one, as long as they're being clear, no one should point a finger at them. They might not like what the person is saying, but that person's not necessarily being a racist or anti-Semite if he's really met these people and he's talking about his experience. Um, that's the way I look at it. But what's the thing you don't do is think that people you haven't met and all people of some class that you've invented have the same quality. Because right, 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 right. I totally understand. Okay, so moving on then. So Jews, so I'm speaking generally, but it's not everybody. But Jews were marginal in this country as defined by, they're coming off the boat uh, from Russia and other places in the 1890s and other years too. Immigration was famously, sadly, tragically cut off in this country around 1920, that act, um, and stinking act in Congress. Um, but until that time, the Jews are pouring in to New York City and some other places and they're speaking their Yiddish, and they look funny, and they have funny beards and all that, and they're sort of marginal, and they're trying to become Americans. African-Americans in this country who were always kept down, and that's tragic, and uh, that's an understatement, but when given a chance to serve in the armed forces with a, and shoot and all that, my understanding of the history is that, I don't know what to say, it's a group, it's not everybody, but it, it was noticeable how many black people rush to serve and rush when they're ele- when marginalized people are, who have been kept out when the doors open and they can become part of the red right people want to be right um, all right those okay so Jews so the way I grew up um, there's lots of different Jews that grew up different ways but my way of what I grew up with was fairly typical of a whole bunch of people it's there's a lot of history. There's a popular front in 1938 or 39, I think, that Stalin uh, proposes for the communists. Instead of fighting the American Democratic Democrats, liberal people, uh, and hating them, we're going to like make common cause because fascism right. is threatening Russia. And the popular front, so the commies, and when I say commies, I use that term, it's a, it was a terrible slur term. It's a dirty word in America. And I just use the word communist. And to me, it's sort of a little bit funny. I don't have anything against communists. I don't like anyone mistreating anybody. And I Well, the, the word communist is funny to me. I, I actually use it to make jokes. Oh, so. good. Well, that's the way I'm using it. <laughs> right. We're, we're talking it. about a serious subject. But 
word commie, I hope, is not offensive to anybody. Um, communist sounds even dirtier to me than the word commie does. To say commie, he's a communist, that sounds very serious, like we're going to get you and Smith Act you and put you in prison and all that stuff. Right, which the uh, accused <laughs> lead belly would be. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. That's my subject um, that fits in. Because my aunt has a, had a set of lead belly 78s, which I inherited. I have it. She's still alive, but she gave them to me. And this goes back to the 40s. Um, these records that I have. So how I got into the music is that I'm one of those Jews, even though I'm third generation. My grandparents came on the boat. My parents were born here. I called, maybe I'm called second generation, whatever. Um, I, this is, now this is just me, Joel Bayless. I've always felt out of it, marginalized, uh, like I didn't belong. And if some nasty person told me any time in my life and even now uh, like why don't you go back where you belong we don't want you here and all I personally am vulnerable to that okay. I'm not secure okay. I have friends who are Jews uh, who could, could care less about that sort of right. thing but I've always, I think I got from my father he was chased around by anti-Semitic Polish miners children in Scranton, Pennsylvania in the 30s oh, wow. he never talked about it never 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 but I think I imbibed it. Right, I, right, I, right. I think I got something. Um, so, uh, a very serious subject, and I'm touching on it, not dead serious, but there's a famous, we know about black self-hatred when you're, when you're beaten up and called terrible names and mistreated, you can sort of hate yourself. Right. I, there's a, such a thing as Jewish self-hatred. Okay. And I, I love myself, I don't hate myself, but I've always felt inferior. Um, being Jewish, because I'm not in the majoritarian culture. It's that's a thing that some Black people and some Jews probably can share. Yes, things are a little bit different now. I'm 70. Where there's been a lot of water under the bridge. I'm talking about growing up and all that. Um, so, as far as my interest in the music, my there's my parents, my father, and his family come from New York, from Brooklyn, and. Historically, this popular front, which was created in 38, I believe, meant that the American communists and fellow travelers, who many of them were Jews, um, the being historical again, the American Lincoln uh, Brigade, which went to fight in for against Franco in the Spanish Civil War, which was from 1936 to 1939, there. Uh, there was about a thousand people in it. No, our whatever. Let's see. All right, let's say there are eighteen hundred people in it. I forget my figures exactly, but if there were eighteen hundred, a thousand of them were Jews who went from America to fight in Spain, and that's way out of proportion to Jewish population right. and all. Um, City College in New York, another historical subject. If you know nothing about it, it sounds like I'm talking gobbledygook. But that was a free university where anyone could go. And the Jews from New York flooded that place. It's like a, a touchstone um, in Jewish culture, that whole city college and the people who went to it, and this is in the 30s, and who were commies or left-leaning, and a lot of them, relatively a lot of them, came to grief when they were being persecuted by HUAC, House of Un-Americans Activities Committee, mm -hmm. and other witch-hunting groups like that. It's all it's sad, McCarthyism, it's a sad, terrible history. Um, not as bad as slavery, but it's still bad. So this folk music interest of mine, 
I think it came from my Jewish family who wanted to be American. Now, that's not a conscious thing that people talked about. No one ever mentioned this. It's something I've divined by studying and thinking. So my father, I grew up, he wasn't much of a musician. He was very, very weak on that. I listened to Burl Ives records, and those are Appalachian songs he sings a lot. He was a commercial performer, so he has a gorgeous voice. It's not field recordings. But by the time I was 15, I was listening to Library of Congress field recordings where people, quote, don't know how to sing. And uh, that's what my ear liked. And Lead Belly famously has his rough voice. Woody Guthrie has his untrained voice. And when I was 15, I started listening to Woody Guthrie a great deal from Okima, Oklahoma, and to Lead Belly, who was living in Brooklyn, and he was already dead, but that's where he ended up. And my interest in folk music comes because my father tried to play ukulele and couldn't, and he tried to play harmonica and couldn't, and what he would be playing on those instruments is American folk songs. Right. And those songs were very W-I-T-E. Uh, whatever, wherever they came from, by the time they were in my father's hands, they were like what Boy Scouts would sing around the camp. <laughs> right. There's no feel, there's no kick. I grew up with, uh, he's got the whole world in his hands, a black Negro spiritual. And the way that I heard it on TV and the way people would sing it at Boy Scout camp and all that, it is so W-I-T-E. It just doesn't have any kick. Right. But if you hear some uh, recordings from the 20s of, of black people, say, like it's got... You got the... the yeah, the, yeah. Yes, yes. So, uh, so my father, um, it was pretty anemic, but he was interested in folk music. We joined the... We were charter members of the Washington, D.C. Folk Society, which is called FSGW, uh, Folk Lore, Folk Song Society of Greater Washington. Oh, wow. Um, this is back in 1964. Uh, we joined as a family. So he liked that stuff, I think. He never said this. I think because he was Jewish. His parents spoke um, broken English. I knew them, my grandparents. And uh, he liked American things. He was not a... Thank God for me, he wasn't a baseball fanatic. <laughs> but he was interested in this music. And his younger sister, 16 years younger, she was really interested in it. And she had 78s, Paul Robeson 78s, oh, wow. Red Belly, Carl Sandburg. This is that American thing. Carl Sandburg is as white as can be from Chicago. He's singing American folk songs in a quiet little voice. He's fabulous. Yes. It's, he's not kicking butt. Right, 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 um, right. But she, so she, and John Jacob Niles, a songster um, who took songs and sang them in a high falsetto voice. It's, it's a technical term for this, not generally used by Americans, but it should be, is art song. So when you have somebody kicking butt when they're singing, a folk performer, Taj Mahal, that's not art song. But when you have somebody sing sort of beautifully and quietly presenting it to a concert audience, right, 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 right. quiet, that if they've arranged it a certain way, it can be art song. Um, so my father was interested in folk music, but he did, wasn't, didn't get into it very much and wasn't much of a performer. My aunt never performed or sang or did anything, but she had these records. Uh, she did some sort of paper in 1949 or a little bit earlier using a recording she bought from the Library of Congress. She paid them $15 or something, a lot of money in those days, and got one of those red records that they used to produce with just the song that you request. You right. play it on a record player. Um, 
and she was using it for research. So she was more seriously interested in folk music. I think it's because they wanted to be American, wanted to identify with American things. And in those days, and in my day in the 50s and 60s, if you wanted to be American, things have changed. The Appalachians, with all those white Southerners in the mountains. Right, right. That was, that's America. Right. That was what I latched on to when I was 15. I was mesmerized by the whole idea of the mountains. I still love that idea of the Smoky Mountains. Uh, I've been making moonshine since I was 15. Oh, wow. Um, That's why I was interested in the folk music, because in my background, I relate to what I just told you about my aunt and my father. Right. I feel the same way. I want to be American, and I want to participate in those forms. So the culture. Yeah, that's what I identified. That's what I took. People find different things. Please go ahead. No, I dig it. Okay, so we're about to wrap, but I wanted to ask you, you with all said, what is your role here at the... Uh, Augusta Heritage Center, at least for the for the week. That's funny. I'll tell you what. My wife's making me take piano lessons. Um, she's a harp, mouth harp fanatic, and she loves coming here because she loves studying with Joe Felisco. Among Phil Wiggins is absolutely fabulous. He's taught her plenty. Um, she blows the harp. I watched her. She gets busy. <laughs> that's right. She does not play like a W I T E person. Um, she doesn't play in that bush. She wiggles her butt in D.C. People call it, her name is Pearl. They call it Pearl Dance. <laughs> and that's when she's wiggling when she's playing. Yeah, she's and serious. she takes no prisoners. That's what I call it when you play like you mean it. Yeah. She's unusual. Um, I think she's the best of our range of musicians. Phil Wiggins is maybe the best in the, in the country. Yes. If he isn't, you'd have to have a long discussion about Oh, <laughs> yeah, who, who yeah. it is. Yes. But um, she's not that she plays with him, not professionally. When she does, I say she holds her own, meaning this is that white thing, W-I-T-E thing. Students here would tend to hang back playing with a personage like Phil Wiggins, but she goes right up against them. She blows his... She goes for it, yes. She goes for it. Yes. Okay, so you said you wanted to wrap up. So what I'm doing here, I follow, I, to use black blues terminology, I do, if I understand it right, I'm dogging her around. Um, I hope I'm using that the right way. She comes here, and we've been married almost 50 years, so I want to be with her, and she wants me to be with her. She pays for everything, and this time, after seven years or so, she's made me take piano lessons. She signed me up, taking beginning piano with Sun Pie Barnes, which is fabulous, because I'm self-taught on piano, and I'm learning tons of stuff, and intermediate to advanced piano. What I'm really doing here, secret agent, I'm really trying to find people to play with. At home, I have wonderful people to play with, and they're fabulous musicians. But here I am, stuck here at Augusta, which is a lovely place, but people are students, and they're shy, and sorry to beat this to death, but whatever color they are, many have that W-I-T-E thing, that reluctance that to play, to they're, they're afraid, fear. Fear rules this place. Mm. Um, getting okay. up in front of people, yes. singing... People are terrified. Yes. So I've spent so much time asking people to play with me, and people don't want to get away from the gang and come to where a piano is and like sing with me. The day you came, I was really lucky because that lady who's on the staff, I don't know her name, uh, she was singing with me, and she knew yes. all those gospel songs. Yes, she and did. And she was singing out. She's a professional. Um, so yeah. I love that. So what I'm doing here um, is like a bee going to looking for honey in the flowers. I'm always trying to find wonderful people to play with. It's hard because of the nature of the place. It's a teaching place. Right. And I really, 
what everyone thinks about what I'm saying. I'm not, it's, it's heresy. I'm not really here to learn so much as I want to get down. I want to dance. Yeah. I want to play with people. Yeah, and I don't know. like lessons, except the ones with Sun He's a lovely man, and these are good. I had piano lessons 10 years, 12 years ago here, two years ago, that was the same person that I hated. They were painful, painful, painful. I don't know which fingers to use. I use the fingers the way I use them, and it's just nightmare. But So that's what I'm doing here. I'm following my wife around. It's a wonderful place. I'm trying to take advantage of it. I hope I've answered your question. You have, and right. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down. I'm on my way to my class. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Joe. Love talking to you. Jack Dapper Blues Public Media is a listener-supported platform. For more information on funding, underwriting, and sponsorship opportunities, please email Lamont Jack Pearly at racefilmmusic.com or Denise Pearly at racefilmmusic.com. All rights reserved to Jack Dapper Blues Heritage Preservation Foundation. <laughs>